I think perhaps the most uh, genuine piece of worship this morning was the children uh, leading us in, in those songs. You know, we come with all of our expectations and our uh, our baggage and our doubts, our questions, and they kind of just assume it's true, and they come in, in faith. And that was a great lesson for me just to watch them um, worship God, uh, and what they can know about him at their age is, is profound. Um, I say that because I'm going to give you a little sales pitch. Um, if, if you're interested, I say that because it's true, number one, um, but secondly, because uh, we're still looking for some Sunday school teachers for this fall, uh, and these children deserve our very best. Uh, they deserve all that we can possibly give them to point them to Christ. So if you have a couple of Sundays a month and you uh, are brave enough to enter into a classroom with uh, children in, in fifth grade or younger, it would be great for you to go on our website and, and find out how you can be, uh, you can be part of those teams. But uh, that's the most important thing we do is tell people about Jesus, and the most important of those people are our children. So I want to encourage you, if you have the opportunity to do that, that you would, you would participate. Let me invite you to turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 11. If you have them with you, if not, the passage will be on the screen in just a minute. Uh, we recited or we prayed together the Lord's Prayer earlier today, and we're to chapter 11 in our year-and-a-half-long study uh, of Luke. Uh, next Sunday, we'll mark our halfway point. Uh, we'll be going through next Easter in the, uh, in the Gospel of Luke, and so we're, we're almost halfway home. Uh, but this morning, I just want to uh, remind you that the latter part of this study is really going to be looking uh, for this fall at the teachings of Jesus, not so much the work of his ministry, but more the teaching of his ministry. And so we're going to be, going to be spending this Sunday and next Sunday uh, looking at Jesus' teaching on prayer. Uh, this is not the sum and substance of everything that Scripture says about prayer. There's a lot more to be said, uh, but Jesus certainly lays a foundation. And so this morning, we're going to be studying that. And the next Sunday, uh, which is Labor Day weekend, we're going to be looking at prayer, but we're going to be looking at it a little bit differently next week because the kids will be in the service with us. It's, in the, it's the one Sunday a year where we give the Sunday school teachers uh, the Sunday off. And if you have little children, we want you to bring your kids to worship next Sunday. We know they can you know, squiggle around a little bit and, and, uh, and be a little bit noisy. That's okay. Next Sunday, we want, you to, we want you to have them in here. We want them to experience worship with us, and we're going to gear the service hopefully uh, accordingly and have some, some good things for them in which they can participate as well. Uh, but this morning and next week, we're going to talk a little bit about, about prayer. Um, there's a movie that came out in 2002 called We Were Soldiers. It was actually based uh, on a book that was written about the first major battle in Vietnam between American forces uh, and the forces of uh, the North Vietnamese in a place called the, the La Drang Valley in November of 1965. Maybe you, maybe you saw that movie, but there's a scene in the movie uh, where the commander of the American forces, a guy named Lieutenant Colonel Hal Moore, uh, was in the middle of a, a very hot landing zone, a firefight in which people were literally being shot and killed left and right and wounded in it. And it's really chaotic. Uh, it, it, it shows the chaos of war. And in the middle of that chaos, there's a radio man who's staying right next to uh, Lieutenant Colonel Moore, and he's calling in the airstrikes. He's calling in the air support. Uh, and in one particular scene in the movie, he calls in a strike that, that comes in a little too close and wounds some of the American soldiers. And, and he begins to feel guilty, and he begins to feel remorseful, and, and he begins to, to lose control uh, and, and loses focus on what he needs to be doing. Uh, and Moore comes alongside him, and he says, Son, you're doing a fine job. I need you to focus because you're the one who's keeping us alive. To the Christian... Prayer is like the radio operator. 
It's what keeps us alive. It's what keeps us in, in touch with headquarters, so to speak. It's our opportunity to hear from and to listen to the Lord and what he is saying to us, what he wants us to hear. And it gives us the opportunity to tell him our concerns. It gives us the opportunity to confess our sins. It gives us the opportunity to, to praise him and to worship him in our own words. Prayer is our lifeline to the Lord. And just as that radio operator was keeping those men alive, so prayer is what really keeps the soul of the believer alive. And yet, if you're anything at all like me, perhaps you get too busy sometimes for prayer. Uh, There's a lot of things that are going on in your life and and you get distracted a little bit. Or perhaps maybe when things are going well and and there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of stress or a whole lot of strain, those maybe those rare moments where everything seems a bit calm, uh, perhaps like me, you get just a little bit lackadaisical, or or you get negligent uh, in your prayer life. Perhaps uh, we don't see the value in it as as much as we ought. Uh, It could be that um, we see it uh, as a duty uh, instead of an opportunity. You know, it's something that that you got to do. If you're a good Christian, well, of course, then you'll spend some time praying. It becomes your work instead of your chance to spend some time with your father. Uh, My mother-in-law was in town visiting a couple weeks ago, we had a great visit. I actually get along great with my mother-in-law, and uh, and I get along with her great for uh, this is one of the reasons she uh, she brought us this list and she gave it to us, and she had gone through a bunch of old things and she found it. And she said, "This is a list that Cindy uh, wrote when she was ten years old," and she said, "I don't remember the the occasion, but I found one in Cindy's handwriting and one in her brother Alan's handwriting. So I'm assuming that they had been fighting with one another and they had been misbehaving, and so I sent them both to to their separate." rooms. And I said, now you two sit down and you can't get up until you write down 200 things for which you're thankful. Okay. Now put yourself in, in her shoes, 10 years old, you've gotten punished for being in a fight with your brother. And of course it was all his fault. <laughs> and now you got to sit down and write 200 things for which you're thankful. I'm not going to read the whole list. Okay. I won't do that to you, but there's some interesting things on this list. Uh, windows, dolls, uh, junipers, I think that's maybe a tree. I can't believe she even knew what a juniper was. Windbreakers, uh, a pool table. She didn't own a pool table, but she was thankful for those. Uh, ping pong and electricity and bubble baths all right next to each other. Hair rinse was something for which she was thankful. Uh, school, church, and God all made the list, uh, as did the moon, sun, stars, and Mars, Mercury, Neptune... <laughs> Pluto, Saturn, Uranus, all, the, all the, the, the solar system made it. My birthday, uh, typewriters. I don't know why a 10-year-old would be thankful for a typewriter, but she was the zoo. Uh, all the grandparents, all the aunts and uncles made the list. Uh, let's see, purses made the list, chalkboards, toy box, presents made the list, flowers, candy canes, baseball, salt. Uh, more relatives. I don't know why salt was important to her, but it was. Somebody named Tony made the list. Uh, Drawers, closets, towels, the washer, and the dryer. Nowhere on this list is her brother's name listed anywhere. (laughs) See why I love my mother-in-law. She would give me some fodder like that. But sometimes you kind of go through the list in prayer. Well, this is what I'm supposed to do. This This is my obligation. I've been sent to my room, and I can't come out of my room. Uh, until I pray. If you read the Gospels, and you read the Gospels carefully, you can't help but notice that Jesus prayed all the time. 
You can't go two or three chapters through, through Luke's gospel without it's talking about Jesus going off to a solitary place where he prayed. It was crucial to Jesus. It was his life's blood. And he taught his disciples to pray as we're going to see in this passage because he's teaching you and me this morning to pray. So let's take a lesson from the Lord Jesus himself and see what perhaps we can be reminded of or learn for the first time about prayer. Uh, chapter 11 of Luke's gospel, just the first four verses. Uh, now Jesus was playing in a certain, excuse me, now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. He's referring there to John the Baptist. And he said to, him, to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, Give us each day our daily bread as we, excuse me, give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word to him alone be glory. Let's pray before we talk about prayer this morning. Father, I thank you for, uh, for this word that is before us. Lord, I, I know there are uh, folks in this congregation that, that we would, in using kind of Christian terms, call prayer warriors. They're, they're people that, that pray faithfully uh, and daily uh, and for uh, significant lengths of time they set aside to, to come before you and, and offer uh, prayers of worship and praise and thanksgiving and confessing of sin and, and, and bringing before you cares and concerns and issues. But Father, for many of us, uh, prayer is something that we maybe do on the fly. It's maybe what we do in the, in the car on our way to work for a few moments. Perhaps it's something we do uh, at the dinner table uh, before a meal. Uh, perhaps it's something that we say when we get in a, in a tight place. Father, there's, there's something great and awesome for us to learn this morning from the Lord Jesus. Not only the fact that, that he prayed all of the time, uh, but that he cared enough to lay a foundation for us for our prayer lives because he knew how important it was. And so, Father, weak though we may be in prayer this morning, we pray that you would speak to each one of us. Lord, I have, have prayed this week, but not as much as I should. And so uh, I'm probably uh, not the best qualified to give this sermon, but Lord, it's, it's what you have given to your people this morning. So I pray that, that you would not let me stand in the way. Father, we pray that we would hear from the Lord Jesus, that his word and his Holy Spirit would instruct us this morning. We pray in his name. Amen. Uh, before I jump into this text, let me give you just three real quick observations that I think are at least worth noting, uh, but not, uh, not such that we're going to spend a whole lot of time on them. But I think I just want to bring them to your attention. And I've said this, uh, the first one I've already said, but I want to just remind you, Jesus prayed a whole bunch. Jesus' life was consumed with prayer. And, and I'm going to draw a correlation and say because of that, I think it's important that Green Tree Community Church, I think it's important that you, I think it's important that I pray a whole bunch too. I think if it was a priority for Jesus, that ought to be, uh, that ought to be a, uh, a signal for us. Uh, we should take our cue from his uh, life of prayer and make our own lives a life of prayer. And I think that goes for the corporate level. We need to be praying for our congregation as a whole. 
we would really encourage it if you prayed for the pastors of this church. I can, I can promise you that one. The staff I know needs prayers. Uh, we had our kids up here this morning. We, you know, we make a promise that we're going to raise those children in the, the wisdom and the discipline and the nurture of the Lord. We need to pray for our kids on a daily basis. We need to pray for our, for our youth ministry. You go across the, the board, our cares ministry. You can, uh, everything that we do at Green Tree Community Church. You should pray for this room. It's, it's getting older, uh, and sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't. You know? And as, as elders, we're thinking about, okay, what, what is the next step in the life of Green Tree as far as our facilities? There's plenty of big corporate things for which uh, we ought to be praying, but the bottom line is that we need to be people of prayer because there are also individual needs. Uh, there are also uh, people that are dealing with illness and financial issues and challenges in their lives, and we need to be a people that pray on a corporate level as well as an individual level. Jesus prayed a bunch, and we should take our lead from that. I also want you to just note that the disciple in this passage, and, and he's not mentioned by name. It doesn't say whether it was John or Matthew or Peter, but one of the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. And, and I just want to point out that teachable spirit. So say there's a guy that's asking the right question at the right moment. He sees Jesus praying. He notices that there, there's obviously some kind of disconnect in his life. He is, isn't necessarily praying uh, as much as he should, or he's not exactly sure how he should pray. And so he raises his hand and says, I got a question. <laughs> Jesus, would you teach us how to pray? I hope I go through life like that. I hope I go through life saying, Lord, teach me. Lord, I, I don't have it all together. I don't understand all the, the nuances here. Would you please instruct me? Give me a heart that is teachable, a heart that wants to learn, a heart that wants to draw close to you. I think that's worth noting. Uh, and thirdly, as I mentioned earlier, uh, the Lord's Prayer is not the sum and substance of all that can be taught in prayer. In fact, Luke's gospel is different than Matthew's gospel. You've probably already noticed that in that we prayed the prayer that was uh, found in Matthew's gospel, and Luke's is a little bit more condensed. Uh, and so we don't have everything in, in, uh, in front of us this morning that Scripture comments on in prayer. There, there's a lot of teaching in the Old Testament, the New Testament as well. But this is foundational guidance. This is where Jesus says, okay, here's the nuts and bolts. If you're going to pray, here's how you ought to pray. So there's just a, a couple of observations. What I want to do as we look through this passage, these, these few short verses, is I want to look at the tone of prayer, and then I want to look at the template. Of prayer. In other words, I want to look at our attitude of prayer. What does Jesus say about our heart and our mind as we approach God in prayer? And then I want to look at the content for what is it that we should be praying. First, the tone, and there are two observations here, uh, and they're found in the very first line of the prayer. Jesus says, when you pray, say, Father. So we'll start there. Jesus tells us to call God our Father. Now, you and I, if we've been around Scripture at all, if we've been around uh, the New Testament at all, we understand why Jesus calls God his Father. And we would say that's right, and that's good, and that's correct. Jesus is the only begotten of the Father. He was one with the Father before the creation of the world. Jesus said in, in John's gospel, I've come from heaven so that I might do the will of my Father. And we go, okay, whether I believe in Jesus or not, I get that. I get where he's coming from. But you want me to go call God my father? You, you want me to, to, to address God as, as the same way I would address uh, the one who loves me and, and cares for me? Assuming we have a good understanding of, of what it means to have a father figure in our life in the first place, I think some of us find it hard to get there. I think some of us look at our lives and go, you know, if God knew what my life was like, he would not call me his son. He would not call me his daughter. And Jesus washes all of that away. And he says, the starting place is in the relationship. 
So I got to thinking about that this week and calling God my father. And I, and I do it almost by rote. I, I typically start off my prayers. I started listening to my own prayers, uh, which is an odd thing to do. But, but as I listen to my prayers, I start off almost every prayer saying, Father. It, it's in, my, it's in my, my toolbox, so to speak, of prayer, but is it in my heart? So I began to think about what a good father is, what they offer. And I came up with some words, and maybe you would agree with these and add your, some of your own. But I thought about a father as a person that adds, gives guidance to life. It's a, it's a person that says, you're kind of getting off the path this way, come back and, uh, and go this way. It's a person that offers guidance and wisdom. It's also a person that offers provision. It's a person that says, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make sure we have the roof over our head. I'm going to make sure that there's food on the table. The father also uh, seems to me to be the person that offers some correction uh, when, when the kids get out of line. And Cindy and I... Um, kind of had this system where mom did it when they were earlier, but especially with the boys now when, they, when they've gotten older and Jordan's now right in the middle of it at 17, dad's the one that offers correction in the house because dad's the only one big enough to be able to enforce it and, and mentally tough enough to hang in there with it uh, because it gets to be a challenge when the 17-year-old is 6'3 and weighs almost 200 pounds. He's not here in the first service, so I can tell you this. He probably could, could take me, but mentally he, he can't do it, so I'm still, I'm still okay. So if you see him in the halls, just tell him he ought to be, still be scared of me. That would really help me a lot. Um, but the father is also the defender. You know, he, as, big as, as big as our little baby is, don't mess with him because you got to mess with me. That's my boy. That's my son. Katie's my daughter. Nate's my, those are my children. And a father is one who defends. And I guess if you, if you summed it all up, you would say, you know, the father is the one that offers unconditional love. Now, I'm not saying that the mother doesn't do all of that as well because I believe she does, but, but the terminology that Jesus uses here is that which I'm addressing. And I think that the father is the one who says, at the end of the day, that's my kid. We're gonna see in Luke chapter 15, a, a son who comes home and the welcome that, that a father gives to a son who comes home. We're also gonna be a son who, who rejects a brother and a father who's heartbroken over that. And some of the most heartbreaking conversations I've ever had in ministry have been with dads. And, and, and we talk about their children and what's going on in their lives and maybe the, the struggles their, their children are having. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard this statement over the course of 26 plus years in ministry. Dads would say something like, I just wish I could quit loving this kid. Life would be so much easier, but I can't because they're mine. Friends, if we don't pray with this attitude, we might as well, we might as well just kind of back up and, and, and stop the show to begin with. If we don't understand that we approach the one who looks at us like that, who looks at us like the one who has unconditional love for us, and he truly is our father, and the term Jesus uses there is the Jewish term for daddy. He's the one who longs to hold us in his arms. And I know that there are times when guilt and shame in the world would tell us that we ought to run because he isn't our father. But the truth is that Jesus explains very clearly in this text, you start with the one who is your father. And I believe that's ultimately the most foundational piece of prayer. Steve Brown says this about the topic. He says, the only people who ever get any better are those who know that if they never get better, God will love them anyway. The only people who ever get better are those who know that if they never get better, God will love them anyway. That's your father. And so Jesus says the first tone is a tone of intimacy between a child and a parent. 
But then the very next word he uses also describes tone. He says, Father, hallowed be your name. That word hallowed means may your name be honored. May your name be set above all other names. May you receive the glory. May you receive the attention. May you be center stage. May the world see who you truly are. I want your name to be honored. I want your glory to be ahead of mine. And I desire to honor you and have others honor you as well. So that when we say, Father, hallowed be your name, we're committing ourselves to see that that's accomplished. We're not just sitting and saying, Lord, we we really wish other people would would worship you just like we do. (laughs) We really wish that other folks would get it and, and they would also honor your name. What we're saying in that prayer is that I want your glory to be before mine. And I desire to honor you, but I also desire to have others honor you because of my example. I want to live in such a way that people desire to honor Christ, honor God, because of what they see in me. Not out of pride, not out of arrogance, but rather out of humility and brokenness. I long for people to look at my life and say, praise God for what he's doing. Uh, maybe it's my example or my morning to use movie examples, but uh, in the movie, As Good As It Gets, the character uh, Melvin Udall, who's really a messed up guy. I mean, he's really a messed up guy, and he's, he's trying to convince Carol, the waitress, uh, to fall in love with him. Uh, and, and she can't for the life of her imagine uh, why she would or what his attraction is to her. And so she says, so Melvin, I just don't get it. Why, why are you so hung up about me? What is it about me? Tell me, I don't understand. And Melvin looks at her, he says, you make me want to be a better man. That's a great line. I wish I had thought of that line. <laughs> what a great line. I tried it on Cindy one time. She went, I saw the movie. <laughs> don't even try that. <laughs> but, but Paul says to, to his uh, folks in Philippi, he says, have the mind of Christ. Have the, have the attitude of Christ. Do I have that mind of Christ? Do I, do I just long to be godly, not so I can boast about it, not so I can be arrogant about it, but because I want to point people to God. I can't offer that prayer if I'm not willing to do that in my own life, willing to have my life be a reflection of his grace, a reflection of his glory. So the the tone of our prayer, I believe Jesus says, is, is one of Father, it's one of intimacy, and it's one of also longing for God's name to be honored and glorified. But what's the content? What's, what's the template, so to speak? How do we pray or for what should we pray? And I believe that the, the rest of the prayer gives us uh, four clues into what ought to be ingredients in each one of our prayer lives. He says, Father, hallowed be your name. And then the first thing he says after that is your kingdom come. Now, there's a big picture uh, explanation of this, and then there's a, a smaller uh, explanation of this. The big picture is you're praying for Jesus to come back. The Bible promises, Jesus promised at the end of the Gospels, he promised in Acts. It's promised again throughout Paul's epistles. It's promised again in John's writing. And it's promised again in Revelation that Jesus will return in physical bodily form, and he will establish his eternal kingdom, that that's an event that's going to culminate history. And we are called as Christians to pray for that. And so when you pray, your kingdom come, that's part of that prayer. You're saying, Jesus, come on back. We want to see your kingdom established. But beyond that, in the the more uh, day in and day out or or in the, the now, right now, until Jesus comes back, it also means that we are praying for his influence and his character to be extended into the world. That the 
gospel of Jesus Christ would go into the four corners of the world and that his kingdom, his priorities, his glory would be something that encompasses the entire globe. So as I think about that part of the prayer, it's easy for me in a sense to say, Lord Jesus, I want you to come back because I don't really have anything to do with that. <laughs> That's a promise that God has, has given us and, and I am just simply endorsing that promise and thanking God for it and agreeing with it. But I, but I don't influence. Jesus isn't in heaven going, I wonder when Tom wants me to come back. I think I'll pick that day. That day's already been marked out by God. I'm, sim- I'm simply acknowledging that and longing for it. But in the smaller scope of things, the influence of God's character in the world today. How can I pray that prayer and not participate in actively trying to bring that about in my own life? There's a story about a farmer who who lived on a very, very large farm in the Midwest, a couple of thousands of acres, and he grew corn, and he was very successful. He did it very well, uh, and he had small children, and, and one day they were around the dinner table, and they were praying at dinner, and, and they had been to church earlier in the day, and the, and the minister had said something about the folks who don't have as much food, and so the father was kind of following up on that. He thought, I'm going to reinforce that with, with the kids around the table, so he prayed that the Lord would provide for the needy that he would give food to those who were hungry. And they got done with the prayer and, and uh, his, uh, one of his little boys looked up and he said, Daddy, I wish I had your corn. They said, well, son, why, why do you want to have my corn? He says, well, if I had your corn, then I could answer your prayer. It's amazing what our children can teach us if we're willing to listen. How can I pray that God's kingdom come and not use my energy and my effort and my resources and my mind and my heart and my will to seek to see that happen. Now, friends, we can't make God's kingdom come over the entire globe. That's, that's too big of a, of a piece of the pie to slice. But we can make a difference in our own community. We can make a difference in our own family. There are some poor folks that we can feed. There are some people that are hurting that we can minister to. And so the question before the house this morning is, how is God's kingdom coming through my influence? Small though it may be, One person, though I might be, how am I bringing about God's kingdom on earth? At Green Tree, as a a body of believers, we try to slice that up into smaller pieces so that we can have an influence. Let me give you a couple of examples. We've adopted a community in South Africa called Samora. And, And through the giving of the people at Green Tree, the resources that we have available to us, there are now people on the ground in that community of Samora, about 25,000 people that are there specifically to share the gospel and to seek to find out what the physical needs are of that community and how we can reach those needs, how we can help meet those needs. They're there ministering in the name of Jesus Christ. That's bringing God's kingdom to one small little place, but it's bringing God's kingdom. We're gonna be planning a church in Lafayette Square. We're in the process of doing that. We've got a, a couple of dozen folks who have, who have already moved in the area and started that work. And, and as the years unfold, uh, we're going to be more and more involved in that process. Now, Lafayette Square is a small, tiny portion of St. Louis, Missouri, just a little bit of the population, but it's part of it. And God's kingdom is coming to Lafayette Square. The kingdom of God comes to the halls of Kirkwood High School when the Christian students of this congregation go to school and represent Christ there. The kingdom of God goes into your business place. It goes into your workplace. It's going to get in your car when it leaves church today. And wherever it drives to, that's where the kingdom of God is going. How will we influence for Jesus Christ? It begins by praying that God's kingdom would come. And then it begins to ask the question, how do I be part of God's answer to that prayer? 
In verse 3, Jesus goes on to say, not only pray your kingdom come, but also pray, give us this day our daily bread. Now that, that is probably a little bit tougher one for you and I to get our minds around. I mean, we'd like to say, okay, Lord, give us our daily bread, but I know that my daily bread's already back at my house. <laughs> I know that, that we have a refrigerator full of food and that the cabinets are stocked and, and that every payday, every two weeks, we go to the grocery store and, and we restock. And, and I don't worry about where I'm going to get my next meal. And you could, if I turn sideways even a little bit more, you could tell that was not a, was not a problem. <laughs> but the bigger question is not whether I have plenty or whether I just have a little bit or just enough to get by, but is it the fact that I understand that everything I have originates from God? that he has given me whatever I have. And you say, well, I've earned it. And my question would be, well, well, if you've earned it, what talent did you use to earn it? Well, I'm a teacher, I'm a doctor, I'm a lawyer. Well, who gave you that talent in the first place? Well, my parents. Well, who gave your parents their life? And so on and so forth. Eventually the source comes back to God. You didn't choose to be born in the United States of America. You didn't choose to be part of any particular community before you were born. God gave you that. And he gave you your talents and he gave you the mind and he gave you all that you have to use it for his kingdom. So that when I pray, give me this day, my daily bread, what it's doing is it's reminding me that God is the one who ultimately is the provider, that my trust is in him for all that I have. And it also reminds me that if God gives it to me, I ought to steward it very wisely. And I believe this part of the Lord's prayer gives me wisdom. It gives me perspective. Perhaps it even makes me a bit more generous. You know, if God has blessed me so much, how can I not turn around and bless someone else? This portion of the Lord's Prayer, this portion of our daily prayer life should be a reminder to us that God is the one who has given and therefore it is to us to use it, to share it, to bring glory to him with all that he has given us. Once, you know, we had the, the kids up here this morning. I was thinking about this part of the, the Lord's Prayer, and I said, what's one of the first thing you teach your kids? You know, when you, when you have more than, than one child, when, you're, when you finally got two or three, and they're still maybe, you know, four or five and younger, and, and they're playing together, what's one of the first things you try to teach your children? Is it not to share? Is it not to say, now you've had that toy for a little while, now let Susie play with it? You know, and don't take it and hit Susie on the head with it, but give it to her lovingly and let her have fun as well. Let her experience the joy that you've been experiencing. Isn't that one of the primary lessons we teach our children? If it's not, if you have young children, it ought to be one of the primary lessons you teach your children. Does God, by giving us these good gifts, is he not encouraging us to share He's not encouraging us to use that which we need for our own sustenance and then offer the rest to others. Jesus says, your kingdom come. Give us this day our daily bread. And then the, the, the third part of this portion of the prayer, he says this in verse four, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Now, we want to be careful here because it, this may sound like, uh, like a, a quid pro quo, for example. Uh, in exchange, if I do this, uh, then, then you'll do that. Uh, but Jesus isn't suggesting here that we earn our mercy by granting mercy to others. We're, we're not saying, now, Lord, I'm going to go out and forgive people, and because I forgive people, you are therefore obligated to forgive me. That would be, uh, that would get it, be getting the argument backwards. I can't say, God, because I forgive others, it's now time to receive your forgiveness. But rather, it's acknowledging 
that forgiveness doesn't begin with me, but it begins with God. That, that forgiveness, that mercy, that compassion, that grace, it, it doesn't start in my heart and it doesn't start in my soul, but rather it began in the mind of God when Adam and Eve ate that fruit and condemned all of us to death as we sinned with them there in the garden. And God said, I, I can condemn them, but I can also be gracious and I choose grace. And this part of the prayer reminds us that God is the one who is forgiving, that God is gracious. What does Paul say in Romans chapter 5? He says, while you were still sinners. He goes on a little bit later on in Romans chapter 5. He says, while you were still God's enemies, Christ died for you. The ultimate act of forgiveness, the ultimate act of grace and mercy is found at the cross of Christ. It's not found in my life or in your life, but it's found in what Jesus has done for lost sinners like you and like me, and we're described as God's enemies. Not as, not, as, not as lost sheep who have gone a different way, but as enemies of God. While I was attacking God, while I was against God, Jesus died for me. Think about this, friends. What if they actually found Osama bin Laden? Okay? I'm just going to go on record. They're not going to find the guy. But let's just say, what if they did? And what if they brought him back to the United States? And what if they had a huge uh, worldwide uh, televised trial? And they were able uh, to, to bring judgment upon him for all the things that he's done. And what if he was condemned to death? And what if on the day of his execution, you turned on your TV, and there standing at the, at the chamber where he was going to be executed was Tom Rick saying, let him live, let him live, kill me instead. I've heard all the things he's done. I, I know he's an enemy of the United States. I, I know if you let him loose, he may even do worse damage than he's already done, but kill me. You would say that pastor of ours has lost his mind. <laughs> Who would die for an enemy? It makes no sense. That's the depth of the forgiveness of God. While I was still offending him, Jesus died for me. So when you offend me, when you hurt my feelings, when, when I do something uh, that is, is harmful in our relationship, when I sin against you or you sin against me, why are we able to forgive? We're able to forgive because we can say, I did worse to Jesus. It's my fault he hung on that cross. And he didn't wait for me to recognize that and to become his friend. He did it while I still hated him, while I was still indifferent towards him, while I still had no inclination to move towards him. He drew me to himself. If that's the case, I can certainly forgive you whatever sin you may have committed against me. Forgive us because we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. I want to give you one other little, this, this is not really about prayer, but, it, but it's maybe just a little bit of a, of a life skill. I want to encourage you in your relationships with your friends and in your relationships with your spouses and in your relationship with your children, not to say you're sorry or that you apologize when you sin against someone. I would, I, I would love for you, as I would love for myself, to get into the habit of saying, would you please forgive me for X? Okay. Cindy, I was rude to you. I, I, I lost my temper and I spoke in a mean tone. Would you please forgive me for the animosity in my heart towards you? That's hard to say. Let me just tell you, the first time, you, especially if you try this with a spouse, okay, it's like don't do this at home. It's like the, you know, the guy's on a closed track and it's safe. Uh, the first time you try it at home, it's going to be hard because you have to say that you're wrong. And if you're like me, it's like I was... I was... 
You can't get it out of your mouth. That's how heinous the pride is in my heart. It's how steeped I am in sin. Just to look at my wife and say, I was wrong. (laughs) And I ask you to forgive me because Jesus forgives me. Friends, that will change the whole way you look at the way you live. We stop telling our kids to say that we're sorry. You know, Nathan, go tell Jordan you're sorry for hitting him in the head with that golf club. (laughs) You know, we stopped doing that. Why? Because Nathan wasn't sorry. (laughs) If you gave him the golf club, he'd do it again. He was really put out with Jordan, okay? But when we began to model forgiveness, began to make all the difference in the world, helps me understand the grace that I have received. And then the last part of of Luke's kind of condensed prayer is this in uh, verse 4. And lead us not into temptation. When we pray, we pray, Lord, lead us not into temptation. Now, again, we have to be careful here because he's not suggesting that God leads us to sin. We're not suggesting that God says, come on, kids, you know, jump in this mud puddle over here. And then he stands back and goes, boy, I hope they don't jump in that mud puddle because they'd really be wrong to do that. They'll get all dirty and that'll mess them up. But I'm going to test them and see if they'll follow me or not. That is not God's attitude. Read the first chapter of James and you'll see very clearly that God does not tempt anyone with sin. But rather when we pray this, we are acknowledging our own proclivity towards rebellion. What I'm saying when I say, Lord, lead me not into temptation, I'm saying that, Lord, I need some help to live in conformity with the gospel. Father, I don't want to be at odds with you, but I know my tendency to go a different direction. So I can't be led into temptation. I don't want to be diametrically opposed to my father. So Father, I'm asking you for your help. You know more than I do. You better understand my life and the temptations which I face. So Father, help me with temptation. Again, it's one of submitting ourselves to the lordship of Christ. How important is that in, in your life? Well, I don't know. How often are you tempted? <laughs> I'm tempted, you know, every hour of every day with a whole variety of temptations. And so for me to be reminded and to be focused on the fact that I am easily led astray is a very important part of my prayer life. Origin of Alexander was a third century uh, theologian, and Jeremy's doing the, the heroes of, uh, of the faith. And uh, Origen is a guy I like to study. And one of the reasons I kind of fell in love with Origen because uh, when, when he was a young pastor, uh, he was brought before some folks in this town. He was being persecuted for his faith. Uh, and they said, if you recant and if you, if you bow to, the, to, we would call them idols, if you bow to, to the other gods, then we won't persecute you anymore. And as a young man, Origen uh, bowed the knee. He, he messed up. He messed up big time. He said, okay, Jesus isn't God. I'll go with you guys because I don't, I don't want to get hurt. Later on, he, he recanted his recanting and he turned back to Christ. And at the age of 70, he was tortured to death. But somebody asked Origen, what was it in that earlier experience? Uh, what did he learn? And he said, I learned the importance of prayer. Because the day in which the persecutors came to my home, I had not said my morning prayers. Is it a duty? Or is it an opportunity? God calls us to be people of prayer, not because he wants to see if we'll really spend time loving him and and saying the right things and doing the right things, but because prayer is our lifeline. It's our lifeline in a spiritual battle, just as that radio was a lifeline to those soldiers in November of 65. Will we as a people see prayer 
This, the ingredients that are listed here, the tone that, that, is, that is instructed by Jesus, well, we see that as an opportunity and not an obligation. Let's pray.